I found this yesterday um, as we were talking about, um, you know, last week we talked about friends, faith, um, and forgiveness. And so I found this. It said a middle school teacher asked her class to write imaginative definitions of a friend. And these were some of the descriptions that she received. A friend is a pair of open arms in a society of armless people. A friend is a warm bedroll on a cold and frosty night. Boy, last night was cold and frosty. <laughs> I'm glad the, air, the air, heat worked, right, Marcus? Um, a friend is a mug of hot coffee on a damp, cloudy day. A friend is a beautiful orchard in the middle of the desert, and a friend is a hot bath after you've walked 20 miles on a dusty road. So those people were very eloquent. Uh, middle school, middle school kids, that's not middle school kids, no. They're saying no. We teach those kids, that's not how they write. Forget about it. Well, last week, just a quick reminder to kind of get us caught up, we talked about friends, faith, and forgiveness. Uh, those were the main elements of the message. We had these five friends right, that were coming to Jesus, four of them carrying their paralytic friend. And I thought it was interesting because if you look at numbers in the Bible, numbers are very significant uh, when you go through numerology. And the number five in the Bible is symbolic of grace. Five is the number of grace. And so these five friends come to Jesus and they find grace. They weren't going to let anything stand in their way, not a crowd, not a roof, as they tore that apart to get their friend down to Jesus. And interrupting Jesus' small group, right? He's trying to have a small group there in the house that it turned into a big group because nobody could get through. They carry him all the way up to the roof, start tearing it open, tie ropes around this bed that he's you know, laying on and lower him down to Jesus' feet. And what they were doing, they were bearing his burden literally. We are carried to bear one another's burdens. And Paul tells us that when we bear one another's burdens, what we're doing is we're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. They talk so much about the law of Moses, right, and all the different things that you had to do to be righteous. And Paul says when we actually come alongside people and we bear their burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. And what we're supposed to do is come alongside people and help them bear things that are going to crush them physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We're not supposed to carry those things on our own. We're supposed to come alongside each other, but you have to be willing to let people into your life to do that. Because if we let our pride get in the way, if we let our shame get in the way, then we're not going to have our burdens lifted by other people. This man, if he had let his pride get in the way or his embarrassment over his situation, he would not have received his healing from the Lord, if that makes sense. So when we do that, when we allow others into our life, and when we come alongside people, we are both blessed in the process, okay? And one of the things that I've learned over time, because I don't like asking for help, I like to try to do things on my own. And when that happens, when my pride gets in the way, I can rob somebody else, actually, of getting a blessing. When we allow other people to do these things for us, they're blessed as a, as a part of it. They're blessed. We're blessed. So let's not rob other people of their blessing by trying to be prideful and keep them at arm's length. And I think that made a huge statement to Jesus. He didn't get upset with them. He didn't yell at them and say, hey, can't you see I'm trying to do ministry down here? He just simply looked on them with compassion. I think he was impressed at the boldness and the determination of these friends that wanted to place their buddy at his feet. True friends... True friends steer one another to Jesus. They take one another to Jesus. They keep pointing each other towards the Savior, and that's what they were doing. Friendship and faith. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw the faith of, their, of his friends, that's when Jesus spoke to him. That's when he healed him. And he said, take courage because your sins are forgiven. Now, put yourself in their place for just a second. You have dodged the crowds, okay? You have walked up the stairs gone up to the roof, torn it apart, done all of this stuff, and you hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm one of their friends, I would have been like, <laughs> um, that's nice, but what we came here for was a miracle. Like, we want to see our friend walk again. Great sins forgiven. We want to see him walk. So, Jesus would heal him ultimately, but even though they desired physical healing, what he really needed, what Jesus knew he really needed, was spiritual forgiveness. He needed a spiritual healing. That's his greatest need. Just like you and I, our greatest need is forgiveness. Um, just from a practical standpoint, if you think about it, he wasn't able to do the things that the law required to be forgiven. He couldn't go to the temple. 
I mean, he didn't have a job, so it's not like he could afford even a pair of birds to go and offer a sacrifice. He could not do the things that the law said he needed to do to be forgiven. And to make matters worse, people held held this idea, this belief that if you were sick or if you had an infirmity, if you were paralyzed, if you had something like this, it had to be something in your life. You had to have sinned or, to make it worse, your parents. Like, maybe your parents sinned and that's the reason why you had this affliction. Could you imagine those conversations in your house? All right, Dad, what'd you do? What did you do? Because I haven't sinned, what did you do to me? You know, for me to be in this situation, that would have made it a little bit tense. And people would have been looking down on him in condemnation, thinking there must be something in your life, you must have sinned, there must be something in your parents' life for you to end up like this. So all of his friends wanted healing, but the real need, what he really needed was forgiveness, and that's what Jesus extended, all because he saw their faith. And I mentioned this at the end of the message last week, but Who are we having faith for? They had faith for their friend. Who are we having faith for, believing God for, that they will come into the kingdom? Okay? And I mentioned, you know, maybe write some names down in the back of your Bible, write them on a sticky note, put them somewhere where you're going to see them so that you can pray for them. And when we do that on a consistent basis, we will see people come to Christ. We will see God move in their lives, convict them, the Holy Spirit working on them, and bring them to the Lord. Your faith can be the catalyst, literally, to somebody coming to Christ. Pray for them. You know what? A lot of people go to, go to church on Christmas Eve. A lot of people go to church on Christmas. People that won't go to church any other time are open to going to church around the holidays. So what I would suggest is putting those people, making that list, that short list, praying for them, invite them to our Christmas Eve service. Might be a good a good thing for them, um, and a way that we can tangibly get involved in faith and bringing them. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and they freaked out, right? They heard Jesus say this, this man is blaspheming God, only God can forgive sins. That's the only one that can forgive sins, and Jesus is like, yep, and just kind of like left it there, and they freak out, and then he turns to him and says, you know, all right, you think it's hard to say your sins are forgiven, all right, rise up and walk. So Jesus heals him physically. He performed a physical healing, but really the greatest miracle is forgiveness. Jesus's sacrifice, us being able to be made right with the Lord. Now, last week I asked the question, can Jesus forgive sins? That was the big question on everybody's mind that was standing there. Can Jesus forgive sins? And this week the question is, how much sin can Jesus forgive? Right? We know he forgives sin. Have I sinned too much? Are there people that are outside the bounds of his grace that are too far gone? That's the question that we're going to look at today. So, Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when they heard it, they said, those, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God calling sinners to repentance and refusing self-righteous people is, is central to our faith. That is central to what we believe. Now, does God love self-righteous people? Absolutely, he loves them. But self-righteous people don't see their need for the Lord. They don't see their need for forgiveness. Sometimes the most difficult people for us to reach are the people that are just really honestly good salt-of-the-earth people. They're good people. They would give you the shirt off their back, but they don't see their need. Why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person. not a bad person. I'm not a sinner. It's what they think. But we're all sinners. We're all in need of grace. Jesus didn't come to earth. This is probably a good response. Jesus didn't come here to make bad men good and to make good men better. That's not why he came here. He came to bring dead people to life spiritually. Some people believe that human beings are inherently good, right? A lot of people think that we're good. And then over time, as we are influenced and corrupted by society or influenced by people, that we become Um, that we become sinful. But the people who believe that clearly haven't raised a three-year-old. If you have raised a three-year-old, you know that we are not inherently good, 
okay? If you haven't raised a three-year-old, go babysit a three-year-old, okay? And then tell them no and see what happens, right? Better yet, get two of them and give them toys and see how that works out, okay? We are inherently sinful, all right? You don't have to teach toddlers how to lie. They do it all on their own. Did you eat that cookie? No. Right? No. Crumbs all over their face. Inherently, we know how to do those things. We are not born good. But what we'll find out is that we are, you know, we're born with a sin nature that will ultimately do us in apart from Christ. Jesus didn't come here to make bad men good. He came to save sinners and make them right with God. Now, at the beginning of his ministry, if you look at Jesus' ministry, and even John the Baptist, what they were preaching was a, a message of forgiveness, repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus was preaching. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. That's what Peter preached when he was in the room at Pentecost and he was there with all the disciples and the Holy Spirit fell on them and they start speaking in tongues and all kinds of languages and people are like, man, what are those people up there doing in the middle of the day? They're drunk. And Peter, this is so great. I love Peter. Can't wait to meet him. He comes outside and he addresses all these people. This place is packed. Jerusalem is packed because of the feast. And he starts preaching to them a message of repentance That's what he's preaching. And 3,000 people come to know Christ. The church started with 3,000 people. Mega church right from the beginning. That's awesome. That's what Peter preached. That's what John preaches, or that's what Paul preaches all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Jesus taught it to us in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive other people. The only people who ever receive salvation and enter his kingdom are those who acknowledge their sinfulness and repent of it. We all have a terminal spiritual illness, and Jesus comes along, and he tells us, I am the life. We're dead spiritually. He comes along and says, I am the life. The first step in getting better is to admit that you're sick. If you don't admit you're sick, you're not going to get any better. Anybody stubborn about going to the doctor? I'm pretty stubborn about going to the doctor. (laughs) Jordan is. It is very hard to get me to the doctor, but Because here's what we say. If I go to the doctor, they might find something wrong with me. (laughs) But the first step in getting better is admitting that you're sick. And when when we're young, we think, you know, that if we get sick, we get hit by a car and we could just walk it off, right? But as we get older, as time goes on, we start to think, you know what, I probably better get that checked out. We become more aware of our need for that type of attention the older that we get. And it's no different spiritually. Paul started out as a very self-righteous person, a self-righteous Pharisee, was trying to earn his righteousness through keeping the law, through doing all of these things. And he excelled, it says he excelled beyond any, anyone else around him at keeping the law. And then when he got saved, he still thought pretty highly of himself even when he got saved. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes that I'm the least of the apostles. He's like, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. So kind of puts himself in that elite group. And then in Ephesians 8, he writes and he says, I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of the saints because I persecuted the church. And then at the end of his ministry, he's writing to Timothy right at the end of his life. And he says, actually, I'm the cheapest of sinners. So the longer he went on, the older, the more that he matured in the faith, the more he realized his need for forgiveness from I'm the least of the apostles to I am the worst of the worst. I am the chiefest of sinners. John Knox, who was one of the greatest preachers in the history of Scotland, confessed in youth In middle age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. John Wesley wrote, I am fallen short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable, and consequently my whole life being an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. His brother Charles Wesley, who penned many great hymns, confessed, vile and full of sin I am. Then the man who wrote the beloved hymn, Rock of Ages, said of himself, Oh, that such a wretch as I should ever be tempted to think highly of himself. I am myself nothing but sin and weakness in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing. As Paul said, these men were used mightily of God because they admitted their need for forgiveness, their need for grace and having to rest on him. God says, I can use that. I can use those types of people because they're not relying on their own strength. The message of the gospel starts with the negative. 
It really does. A lot of times we want to talk about God's grace and how wonderful he is and his love and everybody enjoys that. But the message of the gospel starts with the negative. You've heard me say this before and it won't be the last time. But for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. There has to be bad news. The bad news is is that we are separated from God because of sin. And the good news is only Jesus can bring that forgiveness that we need. After Jesus forgave the paralytic sin, the question in everybody's minds, no doubt, was whose sin can be forgiven? Like this man's sin can be forgiven? Who else? I mean, how much sin can God forgive? What are the parameters and the limits of his forgiveness? In this passage that we're going through today, Matthew shows us just how far his forgiveness goes. Now, we know from other gospels that Matthew had two names. He was known as Matthew. He was also known as Levi. Levi, son of Alphaeus, and Matthew, son of Alphaeus. So we're not really sure why he had two names. It wasn't uncommon for people back then to have two names. Uh, Thomas, who was one of the disciples, was also known as Didymus. And then, of course, Simon. It's also Simon Peter. He had another name. And then Mark, who wrote you know, the book of Mark, was related to Peter. And we, he is also known as John Mark. So he had two names as well. So that wasn't, um, that wasn't uh, unusual. But we see a little bit of Matthew's humility here as he writes and calls himself Matthew. Matthew means gift of Jehovah, which sounds kind of arrogant <laughs> or not. But what we can tell from, from his uh, account is what he writes about himself. We don't know a lot about Matthew. I wish we did. But what we can tell is that he didn't write a lot about himself. He wanted to write about the Messiah. He didn't spend much time explaining himself. But what he did tell us tells us a lot. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. It says he was sitting at a tax booth. Now, I've talked about this several times, but the Romans had several layers of people to try to collect taxes from the Jews. They had people that would collect income tax, property tax. They would even have people alongside the main thoroughfares to collect a travel tax from people as they were going by. And oftentimes they would enlist these Jewish men, these men who had walked away from the law. They had left their countrymen. They were only interested in greed, only interested in money. And they would call them into this business to collect taxes from their own people. Most of them paid huge sums of money for the opportunity to have this job. So not only were they betraying their people, they had actually bought the opportunity to have that job. Now, we don't like taxes, right? We don't like the IRS. We pay a lot of taxes in the United States. But here's how they would collect taxes back then. The people who were the tax collectors were given an area. This is your area. This is your group of people that you were to collect taxes from. This is your region. This is how much you have to raise. This is how much Rome requires from this area. Anything above and beyond that, you get to keep. So these tax collectors were quite wealthy, which meant that they were ripping off all of their fellow countrymen. It was extortion, basically. The people hated them so much, not just because it was extortion, but because it was making them compromise right? their patriotism. It was making them compromise their religion. That's why in Matthew 22, when we see the Pharisees trying to get Jesus between a rock and a hard place, they ask him the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they hated the tax collectors. They hated the Romans. They did not want to pay taxes. So their thought was, if he answers no, if he says that no, we're not supposed to pay taxes, then the Romans will hear that and they will arrest him as being a troublemaker. Now, If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, then he's going to disqualify himself. He will lose his following. He'll be discredited. And so either way he answers, we've got him, or so they thought. And Jesus says, hey, who's got a coin? Anybody got a coin? Apparently Jesus didn't have a penny to his name. And he says, who's got a coin? So they handed him one, and he says, whose likeness is on the coin? And of course, they said, well, Caesar, because what the Caesars would do is they would collect all the money and they would print their own coins. They would literally put their image on the coin. And he said, well, Caesar's image is on the coin. And he says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And that was like one of the biggest mic drop moments. And Jesus is sparring with the Pharisees because it said they had nothing to say to that. They were dumbfounded. They had no response to Jesus when he did that, but they hated Tax collectors, they despised paying taxes to Rome. They tried to put Jesus in the middle of that. 
but he was explaining to them, um, you know, you guys might be caught up in this system, but you need to honor God with what you have. But how much sin would Jesus forgive? Could he forgive a Gentile? I mean, could he forgive prostitutes? Could he forgive tax collectors? This was like the bottom of the barrel. In their culture, this was the worst. Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, they just lumped them all into that category. And here sits Matthew. Now, it was commonly believed that, Bible scholars agree, and I do too, that because his name was Levi, that he was part of the tribe of Levi. Makes sense, right? That's a reasonable deduction. And the Levites, if you remember the tribes, the the 12 tribes of of Israel, the Levites were the ones that were responsible for serving the Lord. They were responsible for working in the temple, for taking care of the sacrifices, for leading people in worship and doing the teaching. That was the job of the Levites. So when you look at Matthew, look at how far he is away from his calling, from what he's supposed to be doing. He's farther away than the prodigal son because he is working against his countrymen. He's not only certain, you know, not serving God, he's working against his people. That's how far he had gone, uh, you know, just abandoning his country, abandoning the law, abandoning what he has been called to. And Jesus comes to him and he says, follow me. Now, maybe Matthew was at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he had just heard te- Jesus teaching in the streets, but the Holy Spirit had been working on Matthew. He was aware of his need for forgiveness. And Jesus walks up and he says, follow me. And immediately he leaves everything. That's amazing to me that he just gets up and walks away from everything. He didn't even know what he was going to be doing. He just knew he wanted to be a part of it, right? That's amazing. Um, When people come to the Lord, I don't even think they understand what they're a part of. You know, they don't understand the body of Christ. They don't understand anything about the scriptures. They just know that they need forgiveness. And, you know, Jesus offers that and they want to be a part of it. And uh, it's infectious to be around people that are newly saved uh, because they're so zealous. They don't know anything, right, most of the time. But they're just excited about God. And Matthew was too. And although he never says it, um, it's easy to see when you look at his life that Matthew by far gave up the most to follow Jesus, at least materially speaking. He was very wealthy, and he walked away from all of that, and it says immediately. And that's a, that's a really good principle for us to live by. When you feel the Holy Spirit working on you, speaking something to you, obedience immediately is really what's going to be the most productive, the most rewarding, to be able to respond immediately to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He also knew that he was going to be ostracized from this group. He wanted to follow Jesus, but there were also these disciples who he knew hated him. So that's how, that's how excited he was about Jesus. He's like, I'm leaving everything. I know these guys are going to hate me. It's going to be difficult, but I want Jesus. And he called me to follow him. So I am single-mindedly going to go after Jesus. This would have been probably the most shocking invitation that the disciples had seen. Um, you know, when Jesus did the miracle for the Roman centurion where he healed his servant, that was surprising, right? But the Jewish leaders in that town were asking Jesus to do this miracle for him because they said he is worthy because he loves our people. Matthew was a traitor to his people. And so when Jesus invites him in, this would have been extremely shocking. And sometimes we look at people and we're like, they're a Christian? Sometimes we look at people and we say, they don't look like a Christian. They don't talk like a Christian. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises when we get to heaven. I think we will be surprised at some of the people that we see there. Hopefully, they're not surprised that they see us there, right? But I think there will be some surprises when we get to heaven. It couldn't have been easy for Matthew, but he would, took, he would do whatever it took to be with Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul had a lot to lose. Apostle Paul the most learned, we've talked about this, the most successful, the most zealous in his dealing with the Christians and for the law. He was flying up the corporate ladder, so to speak. But when he came face to face with Jesus, he walked away from all of it, walked away from everything. In fact, he tells us in Philippians 3, he counted it all as trash, as garbage. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All of his diplomas, all of his accomplishments, all of his studying accolades 
were garbage compared to knowing Jesus. And Matthew was like, everything that I have means nothing to me, only getting to know Jesus. And the Pharisees who were standing outside of this house, when Jesus healed the paralytic, are the ones that we are going to meet here in a minute. They are the ones who thought they had a righteousness that came from following all the rules, but they rejected Christ. They were caught up in legalism. Matthew wasn't caught up in legalism. He had walked away from the law. He was so far away from it, he didn't have time to get caught up in it. He just responded to Jesus' call. He wasn't depressed by what he was walking away from. He was caught up in the joy of what he was gaining. There's a book that I uh, had seen. I haven't read it yet, but it's called Surprised by Grace. And I think Matthew was shocked by grace, as was everybody else in the group. Um, if you've seen, I guess one of the best examples of this that I can see is, um, if you've seen Les Mis, right? Les Miserables, and then you have to watch the one with Hugh Jackman because that's the good one. And he's Jean Valjean, right? And he, is, he gets out of prison, he gets released. And as he is traveling, this priest takes him in, right? If you remember the story. And as he is leaving, he steals all of this silver, He's just got released from prison for stealing bread, and now he steals silver, and he takes off, and he gets caught, and they take him back to the priest. And they're like, this man stole all this stuff from you. And the priest goes, he didn't steal it. I gave it to him. I gave it to you. Remember, I gave it to you so you could start a new life and live rightly. And he was surprised by grace. And he actually did turn his life around because of that kindness, because of the grace and the forgiveness that was shown him by the priest. That's just a really cool example of what Jesus does for us when we you know, live like rebels. And uh, Satan convicts us. And Jesus said, I gave them a new life. I forgave them. I showed them grace. And then Matthew's first response it's interesting. So his first response, just like a whole bunch of other people that ran into Jesus, was to tell the people that he knew. Jesus was constantly telling people, now, listen, I just healed you. Don't go tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. And everybody, they went out and told everybody that they knew, right? And then when Jesus left, he said, go tell everybody. And we tend to keep it to ourselves, unfortunately. But they would go tell everybody. And that's what Matthew does. Um, he couldn't keep it to his house, to himself, and so he hosts a banquet at his house. Now, we know from the other Gospels that it was at his house. Um, in this account, it just says that they were at a house. We know that it was at Matthew's house, and I think this, again, suggests his humility. And he knew where he come from. He knew who he was. There was no need to talk about himself, so Matthew's very humble as he writes this Gospel. He only wants to talk about the Messiah King. So he hosts this dinner for Jesus and his disciples, but he also invites the only other people that would be seen with him, and that's other tax collectors and sinners, right? Those are the only, only other people that would hang out with him. So he invites them, and I think it's kind of amusing because Jesus and Matthew were probably the only two comfortable people at that banquet, right? All of the other sinners, all the other tax collectors, whoever was there are sitting down with a rabbi and his followers. They had to have been a little uncomfortable, and then you have the disciples sitting there with this whole group of people that they don't associate with because they're the outcasts, they're on the outskirts, and so they probably felt a little uncomfortable. But I think God's okay with making his people uncomfortable. I think he's okay with that. You know, Matthew was telling his, his friends, his people, I have this need. I have this need for forgiveness. You have this need too. You need to come hear what he has to say. I was lost. You're lost. You need some forgiveness just like I do. Because if we're in a position where we think we are better than other people spiritually, then we are adopting the attitude of the Pharisees. Because that was their attitude. We don't need forgiveness. We don't need forgiveness. And those people don't deserve to be forgiven. And when we have that attitude, we're taking on the attitude of the Pharisees. We need to have the attitude of Matthew that says, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, I was forgiven, you can be forgiven too if you accept Jesus. Jesus extended the invitation to Matthew. Matthew invites all of his associates. So they're eating this dinner, and along come the Pharisees. The Pharisees are spying on Jesus. This is a little bit creepy because they're following him around. They're looking into Matthew's backyard. They see what's going on. This is where Jesus got the reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton, right? Because he hung out with these people who were known for having all of these banquets, you know, getting drunk. And so his association gave him that, and they would call him that. And then later on in Matthew, what we see is him rebuking the Pharisees. 
because they, they accused him of this. He's rebuking them. And he says, listen, John lived out in the desert and he ate bugs. And he was preaching repentance. Here I am hanging out with sinners and I'm preaching repentance. And you're telling me I'm a glutton and a drunk. Which is it? Which one is it? Because it sounds like you just don't want to hear the message of, of repentance. That's what it sounds like. Because you didn't listen to John. You won't listen to me. We're on opposite ends of the spectrum. At least that's what you think. But we're just where the sinners are. So you must not want to hear the message of repentance. By the way, I think this would have really stretched his disciples too. Uh, Jesus and, and Matthew being the only ones there that are probably comfortable. But Jesus is okay with making us uncomfortable. What I mean by that is that God thinks happen when we get stretched beyond the boundaries of our comfort zone. Uh, there are people that we would rather not talk to. There are people that we would not like to be around. And there are places that we don't want to go, right? And I'm not talking about unsafe places. I'm just talking about places where me, we might have a bias, right? Or a personal preference. I don't like those people. I don't want to be around them. They're toxic, whatever it is. I don't want to be around them. But God's okay with making us uncomfortable, people that are different from us. You know, we're called to be salt and light. And we can't be salt and light if we're not in the places that are dark and deteriorating, right? We have to be in those places if we're going to be salt and light the way that Jesus tells us to. God wants to grow our faith beyond the borders of our comfort zone. We need to do hard things, things that go against what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants to be comfortable, we do not want to be made uncomfortable. We don't want to be sick. We want to be warm. We want to be fed. We want everything in our life to be comfortable. That's what our flesh wants. Maybe you don't even want to be around people. You've ever been like that before? Ever been in a mood where you just don't want to be around people at all? Our kids would say, I can't even with these people today. I don't want to be around people, much less people that I don't like. We need to be loving the unlovable. How do we love the unlovable? by having an eternal perspective. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he says this, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. Act as if. We say, Nathan, well, I feel like I'm being fake. We're called to put on Christ, right? We're a put on. We're called to put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, we're to act like Christ. You may not feel like it. It may make you uncomfortable, but that's okay. We're called to be in places where we're uncomfortable if we're going to be salt and light. We're not just people just wandering about our day-to-day. -day. We are souls that are going to spend eternity either with God in heaven or separated from Him in a real place called hell. You know hell wasn't created for people. Hell wasn't created for people. It was created for Satan and his demons. When the fallen angels and Satan attacked and rebelled against the Lord, hell was created. It was not created for people, but when Adam sinned, atonement had to be made for the sin. And the message from Jesus is this, you can come to me and I can pay that price. I can make atonement for your sin, or you can pay it with your own, with your own um, soul, with your own life. And Jesus is saying, I can do that. Why don't you just accept my sacrifice, my provision that I've given and stay with me? It's your choice. We have to make a choice. Uh, this week, we had a lot of interesting discussion on free will versus predestination, right? It's a light topic. Uh, do we have free will to accept Jesus, or are we already predestined to go to heaven? And some people might call this, um, it's the, you know, election. Uh, are we elected? Which I thought was an appropriate uh, subject, considering this was election week, that that was a heavy topic of conversation. Um, and that it's a whole other sermon. It's probably a sermon series talking about whether it's free will or predestination. But we do know that we have to make a choice. Each person has to make a personal choice to follow the Lord. And if we live with an eternal perspective in mind, then skin color, ethnicity, rich, poor, Christian, non-Christian, none of that stuff will make any difference. We're okay with being made uncomfortable to love the unlovable if we have an eternal mindset. The Pharisees weren't as concerned that these people were drawn to Jesus, that these sinners were drawn to Jesus. What really bothered them was that Jesus was drawn to these sinners. 
because they didn't feel like they needed forgiveness, but they also felt like these people didn't deserve it. They were trying to trap Jesus in all of these troublesome situations to try to trip him up, to try to discredit him, because they felt, and this is something that happens in our culture today, they felt like their enemies were God's enemies. They let their bias, they let their um, worldview come into their religion. And if you're on Facebook for any amount of time, you can see this, where people let their biases and their preferences interject into their belief system. And then it's weird because all of their enemies are also God's enemies too. So God doesn't like all the things that they don't like. And so they have created God in their own image because their biases have come through in their faith. And that's what the Pharisees had done. It becomes kind of like a holy war, which is a real contradiction in terms. That's a strange phrase, holy war, um, as people start to fight against each other instead of loving each other, even loving our enemies, which is what Jesus has asked us to do. Now, the Pharisees, um, oh, I skipped ahead. I kind of interjected. I was talking about how there's going to be some surprises in heaven, right? And um, I kind of got ahead of myself, but there will be some surprises in heaven when we get there as the people that we may deem unlovable or unforgivable have received his grace and entered the kingdom. And so these Pharisees go to his disciples. It's interesting because they're all sitting there together. They didn't confront Jesus. They confronted his disciples. And they asked him, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he doing this thing? But Jesus overhears the question that they're taking his disciples. He hops up and he answers it. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You guys think that you're spiritually healthy. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for people who think they've got it all together. Jesus was giving himself to the people who they called unclean. Now, in olden times, doctors used to make house calls, right? They would actually go where the sick people were. Um, What kind of doctor would spend all of his time around healthy people? They would go to where the sick people were. In Asia, it was kind of interesting. They had a different model where they would have doctors in different villages, and the people in that village would pay the living expenses for the doctor, and his job was to keep you well, So it wasn't just responding to sickness. His job was to make you well, keep you well. That's kind of the job of pastors, I guess, is to try and keep their flock spiritually healthy so that they can do well out in the world. And that's what these doctors would do. And so Jesus was putting himself, giving himself to these people who needed health spiritually. I've said this before, but the church is a hospital. That's what the church is. It's for the hurting. It's for the broken. Um, this is where the healing is supposed to start. This is where the healing is supposed to take place. Christ is the cure, and we carry that cure with us everywhere we go. We are to be part of the solution in this world. That's why he calls us salt and light. May we not be like the Pharisees who are quick to diagnose the problem but have no desire to cure people. You know, the Pharisees were very quick to point out the problems, but they didn't want to try to fix people. They just wanted to stay away from them. So may we not be those that refuse to offer the cure. We're just always diagnosing the problems and pointing them out everywhere we go. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. Now, that would have been a pretty insulting statement to these Pharisees who pretty much thought that they know it all. And Jesus said, actually, you need to go back and study some more. Go learn what this says. Now, they knew it intellectually, but they weren't walking it out practically in their day-to-day lives. Um, And this happens to all of us. It happens to me, too. I know it intellectually, but it's not manifesting itself in my life, in the way that I live, in the words that I speak. And so I come across as not loving, either unloving people or just loving people in general, loving the people that are close to me. It should manifest itself. It should go from here to here. And I've heard pastors say it, that some people will miss heaven by 18 inches. Because they know it up here, but it never makes it to their heart. They never live it out. They, they don't believe it because it doesn't you know, live out to other people. If we believe it, we'll live it out. Now, they would have known and recognized that Jesus was quoting Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And in that chapter, he's talking about how the nations of Israel and Judah were unrepentant for their sins. 
they're living faithlessly. He says this, For I desire steadfast love and mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This speaks of an intimate knowledge, not just head knowledge. Were they supposed to offer sacrifices? Yes, of course. But if they were just doing it as part of the ritual, if they were just going through the motions, then it meant nothing. Okay, I could probably guilt people into tithing if I wanted to preach on money all the time, right? They probably would leave. But if I wanted to guilt people into it, I probably could. But if it was just go, if you did it begrudgingly and not as unto the Lord, then it doesn't profit you. There's no reward for that. And that's what God was saying. I desire love and mercy, not sacrifice. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have prophetic power, understand all things, if I give away all I have, even if I become a martyr, but I don't have love, it's nothing. I am nothing if I don't have love. All the rituals, all the ceremonies, all of our worship, all of our time in the Word, if we don't have a genuine reverence for God that manifests itself in service and compassion to others, then it's not profitable, but means nothing. Now, our goal as a church is to do at least six projects a year that help benefit other people in in our community or serve them in some way. And as we grow, as we get into, you know, our space, then those will multiply. Those opportunities will multiply as our space, as our congregation multiplies, because that's what we're called to do. We're called to reach out to people that are different from us, show love to them in a tangible way. And that means getting uncomfortable. That means getting out of our comfort zone, healing to the hurting, inviting them in to be part of our family. That's what Jesus was doing. He's calling sinners, not those who think they have it all together. Jesus didn't identify himself with those who saw no need for repentance. And I think that's why people have a real aversion to church in general, because they might say, there's just a bunch of people, a bunch of self-righteous people in there who think they're better than everybody else. May this never be a place where we don't get outside the walls that just becomes kind of a country club. It's not supposed to be a museum for the saints, right? That's not what church is. It's supposed to be a hospital for the hurting. We need to meet sinners where they are. In Luke 15, it tells us of another time where tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus. And the Pharisees are grumbling once again that he's hanging out with this group of people, the deplorables. And since Since they're within earshot, he starts telling them parables. He tells them three parables. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know them by heart. But the first one is the parable of the lost sheep, right? Starts talking about the lost sheep and says, Who of you that have a hundred sheep, if one of them goes missing, won't leave the 99 behind? Those are the healthy ones. And leave them behind and go after the one, the one that's missing. And when you find it, what do you do? You invite your friends and you have a party. Celebrate with me because this one that was lost is now found. And then right after that, he tells another story about a woman who loses a coin. And she turns her whole house upside down looking for this coin. And when she finds it, then she goes and tells her friends and invites them, says, celebrate with me because this coin that I couldn't find, I found it. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is inviting Matthew back into ministry. He was the one that was lost. He's like, listen, you guys don't think you need forgiving, right? So I'm leaving you guys behind. It says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than 99 who need no repentance, or maybe those who think they need no repentance. But he's after the one, and that's what he does for Matthew. And lastly, Jesus gives them one of the most powerful illustrations of God's concern for sinners, and that's the prodigal son, probably one of my favorites. Um, the son who was determined to leave, he completely turned his back on his father. He had shamed his family. He had demanded his share of the inheritance, which would have been one of the most disrespectful things you could do to your father, because you're basically saying, I want my money now. I don't care if you die. You could be dead to me. I just want my inheritance now. And so he's so flush with cash that he goes off to a far off land and he lives it up. People love him because he's shelling out money. They enjoy him because he is giving them a good time. And he surrounds himself with these so-called friends. But the money dries up. The good times die down. And guess what happened to all those friends, all those people who were surrounding him in the world? They left because it had run out. And so apparently times were tough. He didn't learn any skills. And so he had to hire himself out to a pig farmer. Now, a Jewish boy hiring himself out to work with a bunch of pigs, about as low as you could get. 
hiring, you know, living around these unclean animals. And he gets to a point, it says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, because what he was dumping in the trough, all of the garbage started to look pretty good to him. He was starving. And he came to his senses and he says, listen, I am so depraved. And he confesses to the Lord. And he says, I'm going to die if I stay here. My, my father's servants have more than enough to eat. I need to get back to my father's house. At least maybe he'll take me in and I can survive. If nothing else, I can be a slave. So he comes up with this speech and he rehearses it over and over. And he says, when I get in front of my father, this is what I'm going to say. And I'll go into this whole thing about how I'm sorry and I've disrespected you. And I can't be your son anymore. But just, you know, let me be a slave in your house. And then one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, it says that while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, it says when he was a long way off. This means the father was looking for him. I'm sure every day he would look out on the horizon and look to see if his son was coming because he saw him from a long ways off. And then he ran. This would have been very undignified. The patriarchs of the family did not run. They had servants that did everything for them, okay? They were usually bigger guys, so they did not run. But he takes off running for his son. And so his son starts his speech. He starts to get into his spiel, and the father's not even listening. He yells back to the house, bring the best robe, bring the best sandals, put a ring on his finger. He immediately reinstates him to sonship. sonship. Um, there is a, there's an old song by uh, a group called Phillips, Craig, and Dean, if you remember the old Christian group, and it's called When God Ran. And it's just a beautiful picture of God running to our rescue when we repent, when we go back to his house. Jesus was accused of being undignified, of being inappropriate, uh, embarrassing to be seen with such people. But he didn't care, right? And this dad didn't care either. The worship team can come back up. When his son starts to give his rehearsed speech, the father immediately reinstated. There's no need to do that. You've already turned. You've already gone 180 degrees and you're coming back to my house. That's all I need. Father didn't make him go through a 12-step program, didn't put him on probation, just immediately made him a son again. And he threw a party. Kill the fatted calf because my son is home. Now there's one part of the story that we don't hear about very often, uh, but it's very significant, especially since the scribes and the Pharisees were listening to him. And it's this, the older brother we don't hear a lot about the older brother, the one that stayed. But the younger son comes home, and the, the older son has been working out on the fields. He comes back, and he hears a party going on. He hears dancing. He hears feasting. And he goes to one of the, the servants and says, what's going on? And they said, well, your younger brother has come back. He's alive, and your dad's throwing a party. And immediately, he gets angry. He gets resentful because it's this younger son, this one that shamed you, shamed the family, turned his back, wasted all your money. I can't believe it. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. He deserves to be stoned. Because back then, the law said that if you had a rebellious son that would not listen to you over and over again repeatedly, and he had shamed you, you could bring him, if you had had it, you were at your wit's end, you could bring him to the elders of the city, and you could have him stoned if he was repeatedly rebellious. This was a rebellious son who had shamed his family. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. That's what these Pharisees were saying. They were like the older son. The oldest son stands outside fuming. And as his father hears about it, his father goes outside and tries to convince him to come in. He's like, look, it's appropriate that we celebrate because your brother was dead and now he's alive. He's back in the family. But the older son won't go in. He says, listen, you wouldn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my, with my friends. You're, you're putting on a whole barbecue for him. He doesn't deserve it. And he says, son, you've always been with me. You've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. You're not taking advantage of all the benefits of being a son. You're just being accusatory. You're not forgiving. The implication here is that the son never goes inside. He stays outside of the celebration. The oldest son represents the Pharisees and they knew this when they heard it. And just as they stood outside of Matthew's house watching the banquet go on, so too they were standing outside the kingdom watching sinners and tax collectors come in. They would be standing outside God's kingdom 
watching all of these sinners be ushered in. Jesus was celebrating that Matthew had been brought back into the fold, this Levite who had been called back to serve the Lord. The younger son wanted his earthly inheritance. Now, because he was repentant, he saw his need for forgiveness from his father. He was welcomed back in to an eternal inheritance. So too, Matthew, when he left the things of God to embrace the world, now he repents. He comes back to the father and he's welcomed with feasting. The Pharisees never got it. They continued to stand outside fuming in anger as the outcasts were being brought in. And may that never be said of us. May we never get bent out of shape or resentful because someone who we deem to be too far gone has been brought back into the family. Asking why are they getting preferential treatment? I've been in the family the whole time. I've been a Christian my whole life. Look at the way that they've lived. May we never feel that way. The father would say, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for serving me. I love it that you're part of the family and you've served faithfully and you've done all of these things. But it's appropriate that we celebrate the lost that are now found. We did the same for you, by the way, when you came to the Lord. Regardless of how long we've been part of the family, he did the same for us. We can learn a lot from Matthew. His repentance, his turn away from chasing early, earthly things to follow the Lord. John MacArthur says it this way, He says, the kingdom of God is for the spiritually sick who want to be healed, the spiritually corrupt who want to be cleansed, the spiritually poor who want to be rich, the spiritually hungry who want to be fed, the spiritually dead who want to be made alive. It's for the ungodly outcasts who long to become God's own beloved children. That's the story of Matthew. I love the story of Matthew, the one who was the furthest outside, the one that people deemed completely unforgivable that Jesus welcomes in and stretch the disciples, man. For three years, I bet they, they struggled with this stinking tax collector that had been part of the exclusive group that they were a part of. They thought they were the in crowd and Jesus brings him in. And uh, we need to be like that too. So again, I would encourage you um, to, you know, write down some names of some people. Start praying over them. Start believing for them. And when they come in, man, we will have a celebration. That's the reason why we celebrate when people... Um, are, are baptized because when they're baptized, man, it's exciting. They are repenting. They're turning from that old life. They have been buried in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. That's the reason why we celebrate. So um, Jesus, friend of sinners, we're in good company. <laughs> That's all of us. We've been forgiven.